Good morning. Welcome back to uh, basic training. Remember uh, last week talking about Luke 9, how Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. But on his way, he was training his disciples to be leaders in the Christian underground, in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that he is about to leave, and though he will be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit, he knows that they will be dependent on the things that he teaches them before he leaves. And so what we have in this entire section is the, uh, the, the training, the teaching of Jesus for his leaders, for the kingdom. This morning we're looking at uh, the first part of chapter 10, and I think this is a fascinating section, and I I'm anxious to get into it. There are so many neat things here. But before we do, let me tell you what this is. Jesus is sending out 72 of his followers out on a mission. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out on the same mission. You see, what's going on here is Jesus now training them on how to send others out. First, Jesus trains his apostles, his disciples. And then he trains them how to train others. This is Jesus' strategy of multiplication. Always training others. Always bringing others to do what he does. You see, the thing that that he sent the disciples out to do, the mission was exactly the same thing he was doing. They went out preaching the kingdom, healing and casting out demons, which is exactly what Jesus had been doing. And now... They send out 72 others, six for each of the 12 disciples, out on their mission to to, to do what they were trained to do. There are a couple of principles here I want to point out before we move on. And the first is that principle of multiplication. No matter what ministry you're involved in and no matter what role in that ministry, you should be looking at others to bring alongside, to train them to do what you do. Essentially to replace yourself so that others will be, be uh, equipped. So that's what Jesus did. Now, the fact is that no one could do it as well as Jesus. The disciples, as good as they became after, after time and, and, and experience and the Holy Spirit, they were never in Jesus' class. And these 72 that he sends out, I mean, they could never come close. But Jesus never clings on to his ministry, never holds it and says, man, they're not going to do it as well as I could do it, so I better just keep doing it myself. He still teaches them, trains them, sends them out. And that's the same thing that we need to be doing, whether you're uh, teaching a Sunday school class. As green as you may feel, you still need to be bringing somebody alongside of you so that you can teach them, train them as you're learning. See, these disciples were still pretty green. Yet Jesus is teaching them to train others. Maybe you're uh, leading a Bible study or a growth group. Well, again, bring somebody along that you can teach and train how to do that. And maybe right now you're not involved in any kind of formal ministry. Well, that's something you might want to think about getting involved. But even if right now uh, God doesn't have a, a ministry outside of the home for you to be involved in, Well, recognize your ministry is in the home. And you need to be doing the same thing here, to be training your children, teaching them to do what you do, showing them how to balance a checkbook and pay bills and and fix a car or 
cook meals, grocery shop. Take them with you. Teach them. Prepare them for their role as adult believers. Always, no matter what ministry God has you in, be training others, passing it on to others. That's the pattern that Jesus sets for ministry. Passing it on. Now there's one um, qualification to this, one exception. See, the fact is Jesus had two basic missions in coming to this earth. One of them is transferable, the other is not. The one that that is uh, transferable, the one that he could pass on, Jesus' mission was to come to this earth and to show us the Father. By looking at who Jesus is and what he does, we see what God is really like. That's the mission that was behind all of his teaching, all of his His uh, healing and his casting out demons, his kingdom building. He was living and conducting himself in such a way that we could see what God is like through him. And that's the ministry, that's the mission that he passes on. Teaching his followers to depend on the Father and love like the Father. Jesus came so that we could see what God is really like through him. And that is now our mission as well. We are to live and to love in such a way that others can see what God is really like through our lives. But the other mission, the one that is is unrepeatable, the one that we'll be celebrating for the next two weeks, is that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins once and for all. That is an entirely unrepeatable ministry. Only he as the unique son of God, only he as the sinless lamb could do that. All we can do is gratefully enjoy the the benefit of that ministry. Now let's uh, get into our passage, starting with verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Now, the first thing I want you to see is just who these 72 were. These men and women were basically nobodies. They weren't apostles. They weren't leaders. They were followers of Jesus, like you and me. These things that Jesus is going to be teaching now aren't just for some spiritual elite. This is for everybody. This is for us. And notice that he sent them out two by two. Jesus never sent his disciples out alone. And in the New Testament, uh, you never see the apostles ministering alone. It's always in teams of two or more. Like Solomon wrote, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Also, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. See, we were never intended to be loners in in life or in ministry. We always need partners to work with us to encourage us, to hold us accountable, to be together as we seek to glorify the Lord. That's always his pattern. We're foolish to go it alone. 
Notice also that uh, Jesus sends these people out to the cities where he is going to be going. These are his advance team. Often people think that uh, Jesus kind of ministered by the seat of his pants, that, that he always just did whatever kind of occurred to him when he got up in the morning. That's not true. Jesus was very intentional about his ministry. Now, he was also very open to interruptions that God would send his way, the needs of others. He knew that his father was on his side, and these interruptions to his agenda were really under God's control. And so he accepted them with grace and with humor. But he always returned back to his plan, to his strategy. Here he's sending these guys out to, to, to prepare the way, to find out which cities are open to him and which cities are not, to take the message that the kingdom is near, the king is coming, that people have an opportunity to meet the king. See, that message is our message as well. That's, that's what we have to tell people. The kingdom is near. Jesus is near. And he's ready to meet them if, if they're willing, if they're open, if they want. We don't go out and fix people's lives. We don't have all the answers for them. We just have the privilege of introducing them to the king, to the one who does have all the answers, the one who can change their life. That's our job, is just to prepare the way. Not to get in the way. To prepare the way and introduce them to the king. The first thing Jesus says to these uh, people he's sending out is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So they should pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest. I think it's interesting that this was Jesus' perspective, that this is reality. Jesus saw and Jesus knew that there were people out there ready to hear. People out there who had been prepared and were ready to meet him. That's so different than the way we often look at things. We look out there and we say, I don't think anybody wants to hear this. I don't think anybody really wants to know this. But that's not true. The harvest is ripe. So start praying for workers for the harvest. See, the problem is we don't see uh, that people are ready. We can't see that with our eyes. We, we, we look out there and, and we see a society that's seemingly hostile to the truth. We see uh, the anger in people when they talk about God or Christians or church. But we don't see their hearts. We don't see the pain there. We don't see the longing there, the hurt there. We don't see what, what, what God's been doing to prepare their hearts through a, through a, a grandmother who loves the Lord, or, or through a Gideon Bible they picked up the night before, or, or through the birth of their, their first child and, and the awareness that they really want to give this precious baby a spiritual heritage. All the things that the Spirit of God is doing to prepare the harvest, to open the hearts. See, we need to see with the eyes of faith, to take Jesus' word for it. The harvest is ready. It's ripe. The opportunities are great. I knew a young college student in school where I went to school, lived in the dorm, and he was frustrated that nobody was sharing their faith. Nothing was happening. And so he began praying about this and just expressing his frustration to God for, for several weeks. And then one evening, God said, well, why don't you share your faith? So he got up and went to another floor of the dorm, not his own floor, and he knocked on a door. And when a girl, a young woman answered the door, he asked if he could come in and talk to her about Jesus. She said, sure, why not? So he went in, rambled on for about a half hour, 
until he ran out of things to say. Then he thanked her for her time and went and knocked on the next door. Next evening, he went back and started doing the same thing. And as he began to share with uh, his Christian friends and ask for their prayers, several of them said they wanted to start going with him. And eventually, there were about 20 of them going from room to room in the dorms, sharing their faith, leading people to the Lord. had another friend who's a pastor who was, again, frustrated that nobody was really out there sharing their faith. And he was praying about this. One time he was on an airplane, and he was tired. All he really wanted to do was sleep. The guy sitting next to him wanted conversation. My friend did everything he could to send all the signals that he could that, no, I want to sleep. But the guy insisted. The guy said, what do you do for a living? He said, well, I'm a pastor. Huh. Well, what does a pastor do? Well, I teach people about Jesus. Huh. What do you teach them about Jesus? And the guy just can't press it. And my friend was forced to share the gospel with him. (laughs) See, I think it's interesting that everywhere in the gospels that Jesus tells someone to pray for workers for the harvest, the very next thing we see is those people go out into the harvest field. So I think that speaks of the power of prayer to change us to move our hearts, to change the way that we look at people and life, to to lessen our fears and encourage our boldness. It all starts with prayer. Let me challenge you to begin praying that the Lord would send workers for the harvest. Now, don't get scared. That doesn't mean you're going to have to go door to door. That's not always where God goes. But if you begin to pray honestly and earnestly that the Lord would send workers into the harvest. He'll begin to change your heart. He'll begin to change your perspective. And he will show you to whom and when you need to go and and, and to tell somebody that Jesus would love to meet them, that he's near. It starts with that prayer. Trust him enough to take that first step. Jesus tells them to go. And then he tells them that they're going to go as sheep among wolves. Now, that's not a real comforting image. He doesn't pump them up and say, go, you guys are great, you're going to go tear them apart, get out there. He says, go as sheep among wolves. You guys are going to be vulnerable. You guys are going to be scared. And then he tells them not to take any money, any change of clothes, any extra pair of sandals. Now, what's he doing here? Well, for one thing, I think he's telling them to travel light, to not get bogged down and distracted by a bunch of stuff. I think that's why he tells them not to greet anyone on the way. He's not telling them to be rude. But in those days, a greeting was not just a high and a wave and you keep going. In those days, a greeting was this big, long, elaborate affair. It could take all day. Jesus is saying, don't get distracted. Keep your focus. Get out there and do what I'm sending you to do. But I think it was more than just travel light. I think it was travel dependent. So you guys are going to go out there helpless, like sheep among wolves. A sheep uh, cannot defend itself among a wolf, from a wolf. It's not fast enough to run. It has no defensive weapons. It's helpless. You're going to go out absolutely dependent. Don't worry about uh, provisions. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about where you'll stay. Just go and God will take care of you. Now, I want to make an important distinction here. This is not a ministry strategy. Uh, Typically, it is irresponsible for us to just go without making provision for where we're going to sleep or what we're going to eat. This 
was a, 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 the directions for a specific training exercise. But the principles stay the same. I mean, whenever we go, we go dependent on the Father. He will take care of us. We need to trust Him, not our provisions, not our plans. But later on in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells His disciples, this is right before His crucifixion and, and ascension, He says to them, Remember I told you not to take a purse or a bag or sandals? Well, now I'm telling you, take a purse and a bag, and if you don't have a sword, go buy one and take one of those too. That, that, that typically, we lay plans, we lay strategies, we, we plan for provisions, but we can never allow our attention, our trust to be distracted from God to those plans, to those provisions, We always trust Him, and we've seen Him faithful in those times where we didn't have provisions. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think that we do so many short-term projects like the uh, Team Thailand around here? Well, for one, they go out and they do important ministry. Important ministry is accomplished. But the main reason that we do these things... The main reason we have these projects is for the impact it has on the people we send out and the impact they have on us when they come back. You see, we send people out into another culture, another language, and they go out terrified. They go out absolutely dependent on God to take care of them, on God to use them. They are aware of their dependence. And they're out there and all of a sudden they discover that God can take care of them. That God can in fact use them. And they are so excited and so thrilled. And they come back and they bring that thrill and excitement. And it infects us. And we get excited again about how faithful and how able God is. You know, most of us can take care of ourselves around here. We, uh, You find yourself downtown. You can, if you need to, uh, find a bathroom, eat lunch. Find your way home. Basic stuff. But when you're in another culture, with another language and another uh, another currency, then you can't do any of these things. You're helpless. I remember one time when I was traveling in Asia, visiting our field staff there. I wanted to visit one of our field staff in China who was really hurting. But I couldn't get a ticket in. So I decided I'd get as close as I could and see what God would do. And I I got to Hong Kong, and I was able to buy a ticket in, but I couldn't get a ticket out. And so I thought, well, this just isn't going to work. So I called our field staff from the airport in China and said, it's not looking like this is really going to work. And they were so disappointed. I mean, I could just kind of hear them melting on the other end of the line. So crestfallen. And I didn't have the heart to call it off. So I prayed about it and decided to uh, go ahead and go in and... Hope I could get a ticket out once I got there. Well, when the time came to leave, I still didn't have a ticket out. And so I had to travel across southern China, about 500 miles, by bus and train and any other way I could. I realized I don't speak a word of Chinese. I can't read their symbols. I can't count their money. I can't buy anything. I can't read a road sign. I can't read a sign to tell me which bus to get on. I was absolutely helpless. The the field staff got me on the right bus to start with. But I didn't even know when to get off of that bus. I was helpless. But here I am. Obviously, I got out. (laughs) How? Well, God took care of me. 
He had his people sprinkled along the way. On one bus, when a couple of women noticed that I was not getting off at the, the stops to eat, because I, I didn't know if I'd get back on, I just stayed in my seat, they began to bring food to me. They'd buy it and just give it to me. I couldn't talk. They'd just kind of walk up and offer it to me. Another place, there was a young university student who just spoke the, the minimum of English, and he helped me find a bathroom and the next bus I was to get on. One point I was uh, at the border, and I stood in line for about two and a half hours. The line wasn't moving, but it was a line. I figured that was a safe place to be. And finally, somebody walked up to me and, and, and kind of with hand motions told me, no, that's not the line I wanted to be in, pointed the direction. I had a, a, my line to cross the border was about a mile and a half that way. So I went that way. Again, everywhere, when, I, when help was needed, help was there. And when I was riding the, the airplane back to Boise, I was rejoicing. I was saying, thank you, God. You took care of me. Praising God for his faithfulness and his ability. Now, the fact is, I'm just as helpless here (laughs) as I am there. I'm just as dependent here as I am there. I just don't know it. I don't feel it because I'm used to here. It doesn't create the same sense of dependence. As I was traveling across southern China, I knew it. I felt it. And as a result, my joy in God's faithfulness was all the greater. God's taking care of me here, but there I knew it, and I praised Him. Let me encourage you. I think it's important for each of us from time to time to put put ourselves into situations that are way over our heads. Places where we have a chance to see how dependent we are on God and to see His faithfulness and His ability to worship Him for it. Let me challenge you to, to, to think through where you can jump in over your head. Maybe it, it is in, in, in teaching a Sunday school class. You just don't feel equipped. Maybe it's joining one of our, our, our youth staffs. Maybe it's getting more involved with Love, Inc. Or, or another one of the organizations around town. Maybe, maybe it's just making the decision to see real changes in your marriage. Get in over your head and learn anew God's faithfulness, His ability. Let me um, take a bigger chunk now, just because if I keep going at the rate we're going, we won't get through this this passage. Let me read from verse 5 down to, to 16. It says, When you enter a house... First, say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the king of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome... Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you, be, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, 
rejects him who sent me. Now there's a big chunk. What's going on here is that basically Jesus is preparing these folks that are going out for how different people will, re- will react to them. How different people will respond. He says, when you go into somebody's house, somebody invites you in, which, by the way, that's, that was very common in those days. Hospitality dictated that when a stranger came through town that you invited him into your home, gave him a place to stay and a meal. So he said, when, when somebody invites you in, say peace to that house or peace to that, that home. I think what he's talking about there is that, that when you come into somebody's house, bless them. Tell them the news of, of peace. Be positive. Be generous. Be friendly toward them. Assume that they're with you. And as you do, uh, some of them, he says, if there is a man of peace, uh, it's, it's literally a son of peace, somebody who is themselves characterized by peace, then they'll receive that word of peace. They, they will receive the message of peace. They're, they are some of the harvest that's ripe. And, and you'll have gained a, a, a brother, a friend, a, a partner. But if while you're there, and, and the people that have invited you in, begin to understand your message, what you're doing a little better, and they don't accept it, well, that's all right. Stay there anyway. Continue to be friendly with them. Continue to be engaged with them. It's nothing to get upset about. Don't go looking for another place to stay, a place you'll be more comfortable. Don't be rude and leave and find a nicer place. You see, I don't think our attitude toward people, I don't think that we accept or reject people based on their reaction to us into the message. We continue to be friendly. We continue to be generous. Regardless of, of their response, it may sadden us that they don't accept and We may have to come to grips with the reality that they are not willing to receive what we have to give. But we continue to be generous. Stay engaged. Jesus also makes a point of telling them twice that they should eat what is set before them. See, what I tell my kids at dinner time is biblical. <laughs> eat what is set before you. See, I think for, for a Jew, this would have been a big deal. Essentially, Jesus is saying, don't worry about whether it's kosher. Just receive it with, with, with grace and, and, and gratitude. And it's so important that we not get hung up on superficial things, on their lifestyle, on, on whether they smoke or drink or eat red meat or, or, or look different or dress differently. You see, we're not engaged with people to convert them to Christian culture. We're involved with people to introduce them to Jesus Christ, to tell them the kingdom is near, the king is coming and he would like to meet them. And they can, they can meet him if they're willing but then Jesus says, if you go into a town and absolutely no one receives you, everyone rejects you, you know, totally blanked, then go into the center of that town, shake the dust off your sandals, and then say out loud, the kingdom of God is near, and then move on. So there, there, there are a couple of uh, things going on here. First of all, this business about shaking the dust off your feet. Dennis mentioned this uh, when he was teaching the first part of chapter 9. 
But basically what you're communicating is you are not the people of God that you think you are. You see, this was a practice. When Jews would return to Israel after having visited Gentile territories, at the border they would shake the dust off their feet, symbolically saying, I don't want to take anything of the Gentile ways back into Israel. I'm among God's people now. And to do that to an Israelite city would be to say to them that, that in spite of what you think, you are not really God's people. And you're missing the kingdom. See, the point here is that we love people enough to tell them the truth, to warn them. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be angry. We don't have to be harsh and, and condemning and scowling when we do it. But we lovingly, yet clearly, warn them that, that their choice means judgment. We take no pleasure in that any more than Jesus did. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. And it may break our hearts, and we may weep. But really, bottom line, it is their choice, and we can't do anything about that. Jesus also makes it very clear that people's rejection of the truth is not the fault of the truth. He says, you know, if I had done the miracles I did in Israelite towns, if I had done those in Gentile towns like Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented immediately in sackcloth and ashes. See, it's not a problem with the message or even the skill of the messenger. There is no one more skillful than Jesus. The problem was the hearts of the hearers. And as we go and, and just share how much Jesus loves them to, with people, some will reject it. We can count on it. We can expect it. But it's not that does nothing to detract from the truth of what we're saying. It does nothing to detract from the credibility of the message. It just says that their hearts aren't open. They are not some of the, 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 uh, the wheat that's ready for harvest. See, we don't know which is and which isn't. All we know is, is that we have something to offer. And we tell that to anyone who's willing to listen. We can't tell who has been prepared, who hasn't. And see, this also doesn't mean that we never go back to somebody once they reject. I mean, when, you know, the, the, the image of shaking your, the, the dust off your feet kind of it feels like, you know, I'm washing my hands of it. That's fine, forget you. But that's not the way Jesus did. Capernaum, he uses as an illustration of a city that was not open. Yet Jesus went back to Capernaum over and over. A good percentage of his ministry was done in Capernaum. It just means that when somebody doesn't accept that message, that we don't get overwhelmed. It's not the end of the world. We don't get feel rejected and dejected and despairing and give up on the whole enterprise. It just doesn't work. It's terrible. The message must not really be true. We don't get involved in any of that thinking. We just tell them the truth, lovingly, gently, and we move on. Simple as that. Realizing that, that the important thing is not how they react to us. The important thing is how they react to Jesus. And that ultimately they're not rejecting us. Ultimately they are rejecting God. Jesus said, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you is really rejecting me. And he who rejects me is really rejecting him who sent me. As sad as that may make us feel, as personal as that feels, we need to recognize and to realize the issues between them and God. Let me um, read the last section. 
starting with verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and hear what you hear but did not hear it. There's another big chunk. But it starts out with, with the 72 coming back. And boy, are they excited. I mean, they are thrilled. They've been out there scared to death, and they discovered God did take care of them. God did use them, and they are pumped. The thing that excites them the most is that even the demons obeyed them in Jesus' name. See, that was probably the scariest situation, the situation they felt least in control of, most dependent on the Father. And God did even that, and they are thrilled. They are excited. That's the way it works on these projects, that that, that you see God's faithfulness, and it just fills you with worship. And Jesus affirms them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, you know, this is the beginning of the end for Satan. The underground is is underway, has started. And Jesus affirms that, yes, I have indeed given you power, authority over all the forces of the enemy. I think snakes and scorpions here are symbolic for the demons from the way that he's talking about this. So he wants the disciples, he wants these followers of his to realize that the demons have no power over them, that they do indeed have authority over them, that the demons have been disarmed. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told that Jesus disarmed the forces of the enemy. And see, it's important for us to know that as well, that the enemy has no power. He has only bluff and deception. The only power he exerts is by getting us to believe his lies. That's the only control he has. And we, if we, if, if we merely affirm the truth of Scripture and tell them to leave, they will. But, Jesus says, don't get off on that. Don't get all excited about that. That's a distraction. Don't, don't, don't be all focused on your authority, your power over the demons. Focus instead on how much God loves you, how loving a God we have, that He has saved you. Don't get your identity from your ministry. Get it from the fact that God loves you and has sent His Son to die for you, that He might save you. See, ministry is wonderful. Enjoy it. You may be the best Bible study leader in the West. That's great. You may be the best mom in town. That's wonderful. You may uh, teach a mean Sunday school class. That's great. You may be the biggest giver in this church. 
Fantastic. But don't get your identity from your ministry, from what God does through you. Instead, focus on the fact that He loves you and has written your name in heaven. The reservation is made. You see, if we focus on our ministry, the things that go wrong are loaded. The things that go right are loaded. Everything becomes focused on what happens rather than realizing, no, my Father loves me and He's going to use me and He gets the glory for the things that go right and He's going to teach me through the things that go wrong. My identity doesn't rest there. It rests in the fact that He loves me and has written my name in heaven. I think what happens next is is wonderful. I like it. See, Jesus is really excited. Now, this is one of the few times we're told of Jesus' emotions. He says, at that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves ministry. He loves to see the excitement in his followers' faces. This is fun stuff for Jesus. It says he prays. And I would think that he'd pray, thank you, God, Father, for doing such neat things through these guys. Thank you for giving me such a wonderful group of of followers. That's not what he prays. Basically, he prays, he says, thank you, God, that you don't need intelligent, educated people, but that you can minister through children like these. I think if I was one of the followers, I would have had one eye open going, (laughs) wait a minute, (laughs) he's talking about me. You see, Jesus is so great. He just brings it right back to reality. He's affirming them. He's delighted with them. But he brings it right back to the truth that the Father doesn't need intelligence and education. What he needs is childlike hearts that are open. It's not that he doesn't save people who are educated or or who have a certain level of intelligence or wisdom. Sure, they come as well as the rest of us. But those things aren't the critical factor in being used by God. His power and ability is the critical issue. Our part is to be childlike and to, to trust Him. You know, I take great comfort in that. I count on that. I glory in Jesus' prayer. You know, thank you, Father, that you can use an incompetent like Chris. I say, Amen. Thank you, God. That's, that, that, that's the foundation for me of, of any ministry. That God's ability... His power. Even more, Jesus tells them that He chooses to whom He will reveal the Father. And He's chosen to reveal Him to us. It wasn't because we're so smart we figured it all out. It wasn't because we're so good or so cool or so anything. It's that He chose to by His grace. See, it's right, it's good to delight in the ministry God gives you. And to enjoy seeing Him use you. And to be excited about the things that He does. And to worship Him for it. To be delighted with it. But don't ever get confused and think that it's because of your intelligence, your skill, your abilities. Real ministry comes as a result of His work through you. Never lose the gratitude that it's His grace that accomplishes it. You can't even know who the Father is without knowing the Son. You can't know who the Son is without knowing the Father. It is a closed circuit. And there's no way in except that Jesus has been given the authority to break in and to reveal the Father to whom He chooses. Then Jesus turned privately to the disciples. And I think the reason He did this privately was because at this time, they're the only ones who know that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. 
And he says to them, be grateful for what you're seeing. You're seeing stuff that all of the Old Testament prophets longed to understand, tried to figure out. You're hearing stuff that kings wanted to hear, but weren't allowed to be grateful. If you remember last, or two weeks ago, we talked about the transfiguration. And there was Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, the two greats of the Old Testament. And what they were talking about was Jesus coming departure, his sacrifice. Jesus explaining to Moses that all of the sacrifices that he instituted in the law find their fulfillment in what Jesus was just about to do. These, those were the shadows of the unfolding reality. These men were hearing things that they had longed their entire life to understand and never could. Things that we learn in Sunday school. We are the heirs of the ages. We are the privileged of all time. We see the whole picture. We've had given to us the whole plan of God that Jesus Christ was sent out of the Father's great love to come and die for us on the cross, to be resurrected and to be exalted into heaven. And that we could, by faith in Him, receive all that He is. We become children of God. We have His life in us, His Spirit in us, transforming us into His image, making us like Him, using us to do the ministries that He did, sharing His glory with us, and then finally, ultimately, taking us home so that we could have the unspeakable pleasure of His presence for eternity. I mean, that knowledge is the greatest treasure you will ever have. May we never become so casual about it that we fail to fall to our knees and thank God for the privilege of knowing that. And may we never become so selfish that we hold that treasure just to ourselves and fail to give it to others. So we have the uh, unspeakable privilege of giving that treasure away. And as we do, depending on Him, knowing that it's His power that will accomplish, that it's His Spirit that prepares the heart of the harvest, knowing that that some will accept and some will reject, not worrying too much about how people respond to us, just telling them that the King is near, He's coming, and that He'd like to meet them if their hearts are open. You see, that's the great privilege that we have. All of the principles that we've been talking about this morning are helping us to understand how to do just that. Let's pray.